Hello and welcome to the audio version of the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon and today on the show we are back again with Mr. Terry Drury and he's joining me and Matt to actually not answer a listener submitted question today but we're actually going to be talking through our latest hunting stories and exploits and then we also talk about our plans looking into the future, what's happening right now as far as deer activity, what we're expecting and how we're hoping to take advantage of it. So tune into this one. I hope you enjoy it, and good luck out there hunting. Here's that previously recorded interview. All right, welcome back to another episode of the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon with Wired to Hunt. I've got Matt Drury with Drury Outdoors with me, as always. And we also have another Drury, correct? We do. We have Terry Drury, the elder statesman, the man, the myth, and the legend. (laughs) Thanks for being with us again, Terry. Hey guys, how we doing? Good, good to see you. We're good. And today I'm particularly excited to have Terry with us because we're doing a little bit different episode. We're not going to tackle a specific question. We're not going to be confined by a topic. Um, we're just going to tell some hunting stories, right? Talk about some of the things that have been going on because I think all three of us have had some interesting hunting adventures as of late and some exciting things ahead. So it seemed to be a good idea to just catch up on all that and talk through what's going on. Does that Does that sound good to you guys? Sounds great, man. Yeah. So I hear, Matt, I hear you're now a big elk hunter. Is that true? That's what they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a, a really, really very awesome situation kind of fall into my lap, and uh, it was very last-minute deal. Uh, so, the, you know, the, the Eagle Scout in me was a little <laughs> nervous because I didn't get to prepare quite like I would normally have prepared for an opportunity such as that. But basically, uh, the, the fine folks over at Leopold had um, offered a hunt to Mark or Terry or myself. They had somebody, I guess, uh, drop out last minute from an elk trip and, uh, you know, at, at one of the nicer um, – places there, Northern Utah, wild country outfitters. And so Mark could not, he had some obligations and Terry also had some obligations. So, uh, it, it it fell on my lap, thankfully. And I found out on a Monday, I flew out that Sunday and by Wednesday I was sitting behind a 330 inch bull, a trip of a lifetime. It was a gun hunt, uh, but it was, um, it was just awesome, man. I, I, you know, we hit it right there in, in the rut. It was in full swing and we heard more bugling and I had encounters with bulls that I would have shot all day, you know, but my guide kind of, uh, convinced me otherwise, but you know, we had encounters with, with bulls at 10 yards at 40 yards at, I mean, we got unbelievable footage. So it was a trip of a lifetime. So, so have you caught the elk bug? Do you feel like this is something you're gonna have to do again? No doubt. It's just a, <laughs> it's just a matter of getting that, uh, opportunity. Like there wasn't much of a choice on this one. So I, I mentioned to my wife, I was going and it was kind of the <laughs> yeah, luck, but, uh, you know, it was a forced deal. Oh, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was perfect, frankly. Yeah, that's <laughs> Yes. I would like to go again. I'd like to go with a, a PSE in hand, but, uh, hopefully one day in the future, that'll be in my cards. I, I hear that you had a cool trip to uh caribou country is that correct yeah yeah i I got to do i got to have a a once in a lifetime probably hunt too um went up into the interior of alaska that first week of september and got to chase some caribou we we were hunting um one of the large herds out there some fifty thousand animals as part of this herd and they're migrating through this portion of the of the state 
We flew in on little bush planes, got dropped off in there about 120 miles away from the nearest road or town, and we stayed out there for for just under a week. And uh, man, just mind-blowing, mind-boggling numbers of animals, and the, the scale of the country and the landscape was incredible. We saw thousands of caribou. Um, some of the just most beautiful land and, and area you could ever imagine. We we were just camped out on basically on top of a mountain, a ridge coming off this mountain, all above tree lines. So um, you wake up in the morning and you look out and you can just see hundreds of miles, probably hundreds of miles, maybe dozens, um, way off into the distance and beautiful, beautiful stars. And yeah, on actually on day two of the trip, I was able to kill a, a really nice bull caribou. So uh, that was great. And the other guys with me, um, they also killed. So we ended the trip with three bulls down and uh, a couple cool grizzly encounters and a lot of really good memories. That's for sure. So you were with uh, Steve Ranella on that trip? Yeah. Yep. How, how was that? I've always wanted to meet him. He seems like a very interesting guy. Yeah, yeah it was great. Really interesting guy. Um, we had some great conversations. The whole crew was great. Um, you know, it was, it was myself and then one of Steve's friends, Doug Duran, and then you know he had four production staff or crew there with us who were filming and or doing different things related to you know putting together their stuff for for TV, their show, and all that. Um, so everyone was a lot of fun to be around. It was a lot. It was just nice. You know, you you hunt all day, and a lot of that kind of hunting is sitting on a mountainside and glassing. So we're sitting up on a mountain, just observing, trying to find the right bull, trying to find a mature animal. So there's a lot of time just sitting and looking at animals, which is a lot of fun, but then there's also lots of time to chat. So we had some some good chats and got to look over a lot of critters, and then at night you come back and make a little dehydrated meal underneath. We had a little tarp on top of the mountain. We'd sit underneath, and we'd heat up our water and pour your water into your mountain house meal and eat some dehydrated beef stew or chicken teriyaki, and, mm. uh, and it was good. So, yeah, good guy, good stuff. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. It was, it was cool. And, and one of my favorite moments of the trip, and I've, you know, anyone who follows Wired Hunt has heard about this too many times already, but I still love this moment when I think about it. The, the third or fourth morning, you know, I woke up and we were each, you know, each of us were sleeping in our own individual little tent. And uh, I opened up the door of my tent. And the first thing I saw, it wasn't the sky, it wasn't, you know, the grass or the, the rocks or anything. The very first thing my eyes locked onto was a mother grizzly and cub in our camp. <laughs> and so that was a little bit of a, a shock to the system to start the day. And uh, so the very first words out of my mouth that day were shouted very loudly, grizzly in camp, and then uh, hooting and hollering at them to try to get them out of there. And unfortunately, uh, they didn't give us any trouble. They, they scooted out of there quickly. But uh, it definitely got me up and awake quickly. How big was that grizzly? I mean, to be that close to one big <laughs> i mean i don't know how to quantify it but big um size are we talking here <laughs> eh, maybe maybe a little sub volkswagen but uh but big enough that you wouldn't want to get in between her and her cub that's for sure yeah. um it's uh that's like the worst situation you could ever be in so we were really lucky that um that she moved off and she actually when when i yelled at her she ran over the hill and there was actually one of the members of the crew who was sleeping in a separate tent over the hill because um he, he just sleeps in a separate tent over there and unbeknownst to me that's where he was at so i spooked these grizzlies they run over the hill right 
to him. And he was just, he'd just stepped out, stepped outside of his tent, brushing his teeth or taking a leak or something. So he turns over his shoulder when he hears this noise and hears a grizzly running at him 30 yards away. Um, <laughs> so that was scary probably for I him. I bet he did take a leak. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Now, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately she ran off and it was all fine. But though this guy's got some bad grizzly luck because, so that happened on our trip to Alaska here at the beginning of September. Fast forward to last week, so the last week of September, maybe it was the first week of October, he was back out there with Steve um, hunting a different portion of Alaska. This is coastal Alaska out by like Kodiak Island, and they were charged by a grizzly, and the bear actually ran into this guy, and he fell over onto the bear's back and rolled down the hill. Um, So he's had a rough grizzly month. (laughs) That's not really a sentence you want to say. <laughs> no, no. But uh, he he came out of both encounters unscathed. So I don't know if he's like a cat with nine lives that he's down to he's down to seven now. Uh, but yeah, he's had an interesting fall. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, how about you? You've seen any grizzlies out there in North Missouri? I've <laughs> uh, been chasing a few does around the farm here. But I, I was going to say that Mark's story there. Interestingly enough, whether you're elk hunting or caribou hunting, you get into some of those remote locations, you realize how truly small we are in Mm. in the scheme of things. You know, you become much, much smaller on a pretty quick basis when you get into those really big open expanses. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. When we were in Utah there, we, you know, after the hunt was over, we we had to do some interviews because we were videoing this whole piece for a DOD TV episode, you know, that we're going to pump out here the next week or so. And one of my interviews, I even said, you know, it's just coming out there and getting to see it and sitting on these mountains. And I think it was, you know, it it was almost like um, resetting my north on my compass. You know what I mean? It's like you, you get especially I know I do and, and Mark Kenyon you might be a little bit the same way but you know wrapped up into the daily grind and the computer and the phone and just all the business that we have you know the task at hand so to speak and to get to go to a location like that and just look out and we there weren't even you know I'm so used to when we go to the woods especially at my lease you know you, you still hear traffic you hear trains you hear guns you hear dogs you know it's always something and you go out there and it's silence it's just nature and you're not even hearing airplanes overhead and so you know i don't know that i've ever really experienced that before so that was pretty breathtaking honestly oh yeah yeah that that's exactly why i love getting out into those places as much as i do it's for exactly like terry said that feeling of of being small, of realizing there's a lot more in this world than just you and your own small menial problems and, and just being a part of that bigger ecosystem, really. Um, it's a pretty profound feeling and, uh, man, so thankful that we have opportunities to do that and there's places that are still big and wild out there. And it, whenever I get out somewhere like that, it just is, is a good reminder for me of how important it is that we as hunters and anglers, you know, stand up and make sure that we, we keep those places available and healthy and, and accessible. Amen. Yeah. So Terry, you've been deer hunting though, right? I, I, we talked last time we chatted, you'd mentioned that you'd gone a couple of recent deer hunts and you had some, some good activities, some lesser. So, um, but I got me thinking, I'm kind of curious what's like, what's on your, hit list this year is there like that one buck this year you're really after or i mean are things looking good are things looking bad i know like last year two years ago there was a year where you said that you hadn't seen like any shooters for for weeks 
what's what's the word this year? You know, that seems to be the the norm anymore. I don't know why, but I really struggle. And maybe maybe the evolution as a hunter, you you kind of set your you know your high bar a little higher each and every year. So you know, satisfaction becomes farther and farther away each and every year. Uh, but one thing I enjoy doing, I enjoy harvesting does. I always have, uh, because I have a, a high deer density, uh, you know, I have the, you know, the luxury of being able to go out and shoot a few does each and every year. We've done that already this year. Uh, the two deer that I had, two deer that I were after, they weren't on my Missouri farm. Uh, one was in on a farm and well, both of them were in Illinois. One on a really small lease that I had over there. Uh, just disappeared, you know, in right after he, or in velvet, or maybe he'd even shed his velvet, but uh, he just all, all of a sudden up and gone. And he was really nice, a nice deer. He's gone. And then I had another deer on another leased property that, uh, according to my Reconics trail cameras, there were people in there each and every day that weren't supposed to be in there. Uh, so I had sent those photos to the landowner. The landowner, uh, you know, finally got that stopped so to speak so the two deer that i was after have both disappeared and uh, i'm stuck just shooting a few does now and then which i enjoy immensely it kind of puts life in perspective which is one of the reasons i enjoy hunting out of a tree stand in lieu of an enclosed ground blind or or even an elevated blind for that matter i really really thoroughly enjoy hunting out of a tree stand uh kind of that back to nature thing when you sit there in the mornings and you hear the, you know, the woods start to wake up and the birds chirping and all that sort of thing. I, I enjoy that thoroughly. Always have, probably always will. And uh, I enjoy shooting does. So we're, we're get going into this to this phase here of, uh, you know, pre-lock, which is one of my favorite phases. You know, I love that last 10 days of October. I also love those first 10 days of November. I typically like to hunt the afternoons. Uh, that last part of October, I love hunting mornings those first 10 days of November. So we've got some good stuff here that we're into, and uh, I'm kind of optimistic that something will show up. My farm usually lights up when the crops are out. It takes a little while for all the uh, the corn and the beans to be, you know, everything to be harvested. Once they get the corn shell and they get beans cut, then things change here usually. And it's like that in Illinois as well. The tillable, you know, you cut their bedroom in half when you get some of those big, big, large cornfields out. It changes things. They've got to go to the timber. Then all of a sudden, some of your scrapes start to light up. Your reconics cameras light up, and it, it's a lot more fun. Then it's reshuffling of the deck. You know, the deer that you had in mind, the deer that you were after, all of a sudden you get a few new ones pop up, and you change your strategy just a little bit. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. Were there any bucks from last season during the fall that you think hopefully made it back, and when those crops do come out, you're hoping might show back up again? Well, the one that I lost, this big, big deer that I, I lost, I can't find him. Uh, he was one of them that was a re- reoccurring. I've had him three or four years now over there, and, and I was really optimistic because he showed up in December of last year, hmm. and he stayed all through shedding his antlers and then come back in velvet, and then uh, just all of a sudden he's gone now. So, And he's been gone for a month and a half, two months, so I don't know what happened to him, but that one was discouraging. That one was a, a, a punch in the gut because he was a nice deer, big typical 10, and, and I hated to lose him. Uh, I've got several on my farm in Missouri, but you know what? They just didn't blow like I, I'd hoped they would. And you know that's always a head-scratcher as to what affects the antler development uh, you know, is it the minerals that they're trying to get out of the, out of the soil? Is it, they had a rough winter, which wasn't the case. We had an extremely mild winter. Was it because of the lack of a mass crop, which I think has got a lot to do with it. 
we haven't had a good mass crop in four or five years. We finally got it this year. So I'm very optimistic about next year's uh, antler development. Uh, you know, body fat is one of those things that they, they try and put back on every spring, but they didn't lose much body fat over the winter. We had a mild, mild winter, very little snow and really not many cold, frigid days. So uh, it's just a head scratcher as to why they didn't uh, do so much better. Moisture in the spring, you know, when that antler development is coming back on, how much moisture did you have? Were you in drought conditions? So there's a number of different things, deer density, you know, social stress uh, that really are adverse effects when it comes to antler development. So I'm optimistic about next year, which is the reason that we're so aggressive on trying to harvest harvest does. I'm trying to keep the number of mouths down at the table and try and decrease the social stress uh, uh, with the deer density, trying to get those numbers down. Yeah, that's been a challenge for me too on one of my Michigan farms where I think that is one of the, the challenges that I've been dealing with is there being so many does. I don't think many other people in the area are shooting does. Um, but because I have a small property, my challenge has always been that if I try to shoot does early in the season, just by virtue of being in there because of how small it is, or, and if I shoot something that runs into one of these few core bedding areas, I feel like I'm mucking up for the entire season, any chances at a mature buck. So I'm stuck. I, I, because of that, I don't hunt does at all in the early season. And then I just target does as soon as I kill that mature buck I'm after, or at some point in the late season, if I just give up on that mature buck and say, okay, I have to shoot some does now. Um, but it's always been one of those things that I, I wish I could be doing it more often. I just don't know how to pull it off without screwing up everything that's going on. You and I are in the same situation, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> say that you both are after one individual deer, are you not? Each yes. of you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But I, even that, I've had to switch my uh, kind of game plan a little bit because I had this off season, I had done more work on the lease, and this will be my third year on this lease than I ever have before. So when I got there in year one, the stand sites, stand locations, the two food plots, they were already in place, and uh, you know just by virtue of kind of sitting there and it, not only it was my first time on this lease, but it was really my first time not hunting with, with dad, you know, and already having that stuff set up, I had to learn how to do it for, for my own for the first time. And I know it's funny to say as a, you know, mid 30 year old, but, uh, it just, it's just the way it worked out. So this year I finally got to put some of those tactics that I've learned over the years from Mark and Terry into place. And I mean, I felt like, you know, we had observed movement the last two years. I, I've hung like three new sets, put in two new food plots, uh, put in a new um, muddy uh, bull blind, which I was really, really excited about. So I did some things that I felt like were going to put me in the catbird seat come the fall. And I was obviously people that listen to the podcast know that you were after Holyfield and I was after Hook. Mm -hmm. And so I had this game plan. Well, Hook never did show up this summer. I don't know if he's dead or if he's just changed his, you know, home range or he may show back up, you know, the end of October because, you know, two years ago, uh, the, the deer that Adam Wainwright killed, that, that 183 or 184, he, he showed back up right there at, you know, like October 28th. So, you know, hitting a scrape. So I, I'm still in the back of my mind kind of holding out hope that Hook comes back. But in the meantime, I had a kind of a little, the next superstar, if you will, kind of grow into um, the hit lister that overtook my thoughts. And it was a total homeboy. I had a shed from two, three, and four. Wow. As a four-year-old, it was last 
last year. Uh, we found it last February and I had an encounter with him as a three-year-old. He was a total homeboy, always had pictures of him all over the farm. And unfortunately, September 4th, he's starting to lose his velvet last pictures I have of him. So like I had this great, I had daylight stuff. He was under my tree stands. He was all over the farm. And then as soon as, you know, the season in Missouri starts on the 15th of September, you know, I lose him on the fourth and no sign of him since. And not only that, but no sign of really anything that I would be excited about a a couple, you know, uh, smaller four-year-olds, but nothing that, you know, I'm, I'm overly excited about. And I don't, I don't know what the deal is. It might be mass crop, but in my situation, every time I hunt, I'm still seeing, I'm seeing more deer than I've ever seen based on these new food plots and based on the, the kind of the new sets. Like I think we did the right things and the strategy is paying off. We're seeing more deer, but like the cameras are dead from seeing bucks. I'm not seeing any bucks anywhere. And I've talked to a few neighbors that are having the same issue. So I'm just kind of scratching my head because, you know, I thought like, all right, mass crop is one thing, but you would think that the does would be doing the same thing that the bucks would be doing. And I'm still seeing them hitting the green food sources. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know, total hud scratcher, but I'm not going to lose hope until the rut comes. And if the rut comes and we're not seeing daylight activity, then something, I I think I have to worry more about EHD than anything else. And, uh, you know, we planted our food plots August 14th and I got an inch and like 1.2 inches of rain the week after. And then I hit, I think it was almost 40 days with zero precipitation and food plots just looked horrible. And, you know, I know that affects obviously the deer and, you know, so I don't know. I'm a little, little worried, but kind of holding out hope still. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you there. The EHD thing, that'll keep you up at night for sure. Yes. I'm feeling, I'm kind of having a similar situation here in Michigan now when this episode actually goes, you know, when people are actually listening or watching this, Hopefully things have changed for me. But at this point, um, I, I can say the Holyfield is back. He is alive, so that's great news. Um, just not as active on my trail cameras as he has been historically at this time of year. Um, and I haven't seen him in daylight yet. In the past two years, when I had been able to observe from a distance from my little scouting hill I have and or a couple times when I hunted in 2015 and 16, I had seen him daylight during the beginning of October or late September. That hasn't been the case this year. I've, I've sat up on that little scouting hill and glassed quite a few nights into this area that I typically see him. Haven't put eyes on him yet, um, but I have had him on camera like five five or six different times since September. Um, so just not super frequent, but he's been here a couple times. Um, I got him the night of the 1st and the night of the 5th, so more you know early October got him too. So my game plan, though, so far in October, excuse me, in October, because of the fact I'm not seeing daylight activity, because of the fact that nothing's really pointing to him being terribly active in this spot yet, I've just stayed out. I hunted the first night of the season, and um, and now I've stayed out completely, not going in really at all, except for maybe on my ATV once. Um, I might go on there one time in the next day or two to, to check trail cameras just to see if there's something going on that I don't know about. Um, but otherwise, leaving it completely untouched until until now. So when this podcast is going out, this last you know, last five, six, seven days in October, that's traditionally when he really picks up his activity. And so I'm going to hope that annual pattern stays true this year. Um, 
I had a shot at him on October 24th in 2015. I had a shot at him on October 25th in 2016. I came really close to him coming back into shooting range on the 26th of 2016. So if the weather's right um, during this time period, I'm going to go in there and, and hit it hard. So hopefully any day now. If it, hasn't, if it hasn't already happened by the time you're watching or listening, hopefully any day now it will. So I got my fingers and toes crossed. It's... Uh, it's just a wishing game right now. Hey, hey, Mark, how old is that deer? Holyfield. I believe he's five and a half. Um, I could be off by year. He he could be a year older, but I've I've observed him three years now. Um, the question is just whether that first year I saw him, if he was a really good two year old or just a below average three year old. I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but probably five and a half is still what I think. Well, it's not uncommon at six and a half for them to be very very uh, reclusive. Six and a half is a tough, tough year for a whitetail. You know, they seem to kind of let their guard down when they get to be seven and a half, eight and a half. All of a sudden, it becomes more about feeding than it does about breeding. But boy, six and a half is tough. That's a tough age class. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> so that's what hook is hook six and a half. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this other deer, I call him PH, a, a pretend hook, really creative. I know, but I <laughs> thought he was hooked when he showed up last year in the summer, and that's how he got his name. Once hook finally showed up. Uh, but yeah, I, I, he's a five-year-old. So my hopes are that one of those two deer show up, but, uh, we'll see. Well, it can only get better from here though, right? I mean, we're, we're moved into the rut, crazy things start happening. So, uh, hopes can be high. I think we, we talked, yeah, we talked about it. I, you know, Mark and Terry always talk about minimal human intrusion and, you know, my camera guy and I were talking about last night as we were sitting in the blind. You know, this year we did do more work on the farm than we have ever done, and I just kind of wondered, did that have an adverse effect? So I, you know, you, you, it's always a guessing game. You're in a, a lot of second guessing, but you know, by and large, big picture, I think we did the right things. We had to get those stands in. We were as non-intrusive as we could have been. Uh, the new food plots, you know, we did all the work that I think it. Re- it really needed to, to be in a better spot to, to try to get that opportunity. So I'm just kind of waiting. Hopefully by the time this podcast airs, we start seeing the, the movement pick up. Yeah. Yeah. So Terry, um, I guess my final piece uh, I want to try here is to try to dig out some advice from you. Do you have any advice for me and Matt right now, as we're in this last handful of days in October or leading into early November, if me and Matt are still chasing Hook or Pretend Hook or Holyfield, do you have any guidance for us to help these these young bucks, uh, us being the young bucks, get it done? <laughs> like, absolutely. The last, uh, I'm going to say week in October, we've got a, a rising moon that coincides with their normal feeding pattern. If we've got the right weather, we get some cool fronts in that last week of October, uh, I could see one of you or both of you bopping one of those big ones. You know, don't be surprised if, if – both of you don't lay an eyeball on those deer here last week of October. If you don't bop one the last week of October, then by all means, you have to be hunting those first uh, five to 10 days of November because we have a setting moon. And I love to beat a big whitetail, an older mature whitetail like that back to bed. And that, that setting moon is going to hold them up on their feet for just a little bit. I think the moon waxes full like the 6th of November. So we should be good all the way the 6th through the 10th or 12th for that setting moon. So if you can't bop him the last week in October, the first 10 days of November are going to be really, really good. Don't give up on them. I, I know you've hunted a few mornings uh, up to this point, but when is it, especially with this 
the moon, the way it, the, the way it's going to happen here in late October. When is it will, that you really focus on mornings and evenings, you know, making sure you're out for every morning and every afternoon hunt? I did, obviously, in the last part of October and the first week of November, and we've done that for many, many years. I, I tested the waters or dipped our toe in here recently because we had some cold fronts. Uh, Michael and I sat in a spot in the timber. I mean, we were in the heart of the timber, solid spot uh, the other morning, and we saw 19 deer, which is unheard of to see 19 deer up on their feet and moving by you uh, that time of the year. So we were pretty optimistic, but it was a nice little cold front. We had high pressure thermals were going up. We didn't get winded. And these deer were all point blank walking right by us. So we had a tremendous sit. Uh, but, and I did that intentionally because of the way the moon was, was rising in the evenings in October and setting the first week of, uh, October or first week of November. So this, this phase that we're going into is really, really important. It, it to, in my opinion, it's the best phase because the moon is rising and it coincides with their normal feeding pattern at the end of October. And I like those last that last week in October. Then it, it is setting and it coincides when they're going back to bed that first week, first 10 days of November. And you just can't get it like that very often. Last year it was so upside down, it's not even funny. It was rising when it should have been setting and it was setting when it should have been rising. We got lucky. We hunted those cold fronts. So we killed some deer last year. We were very, very fortunate, very blessed that we killed the deer that we did. Mark and Taylor killed two giants, deer of a lifetime, during the October lull. So as long as the temperatures cooperate, sometimes you can get around that moon phase. But when the moon coincides with the temperatures, man, it's as good as, as good gets when it comes to whitetail hunting. So I would encourage everyone to be hunting afternoons and evenings at the end of October and hunting mornings that first 10 days of November because I think this year is more like normal when we're waxing full, and I want to say on the 6th, so I would encourage everybody to be hunting those first, particularly all those bow hunters out there, those, the last last week in October, first 10 days of November, in evenings, mornings. All right, well, you don't need to tell me twice. I'm going to be in the tree. I will <laughs> definitely be in the tree. <laughs> Next time we do this, I want to hear one of you tell me a story, or both of you, about uh, Holyfield and, and Hook. Oh, That's <laughs> I hope so. I, I really do hope so. I think otherwise people are going to stop listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Well, uh, I guess we should, we should shut up now and just get ready to get ready in the woods. So anything else we need to cover, Matt? I think we covered it all today. All right. Well, then I will just leave our listeners and viewers really quickly with a couple updates. Number one, if you'd like to submit a question of your own for a future episode, you can do that at wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. And then make sure if you want to listen to the audio version to subscribe on either the Apple podcast app or Google Play or Stitcher, you can find it basically anywhere you can get a podcast and uh, subscribe. Tune in for future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to watch this episode or any of our previous episodes i think we have you know 52 53 of these now uh head over to the jury outdoors youtube channel and please by all means hit subscribe uh, we're actually doing some really cool giveaways we're trying to reach a hundred thousand subscribers so we're going to be giving away some pse bows along the way and um, also the elk hunt that we mentioned at the beginning of this uh podcast I believe by the time this airs, it should be on our YouTube uh, page. So um, keep an eye out for that. We're doing a lot of original content, uh, you know, that we hit every week. 
podcasts and um, uh, new DOD TV episodes, episodes, new Natural Born episodes. So a lot of neat things, Killing in the Kitchen from Taylor. So by all means, check it out. And as always, you can follow us on social media at Drury Outdoors. Awesome. Well, thank you, Terry, for joining us as well today. We always appreciate that. You're quite welcome, guys. I want to make sure that everybody's safe. Wear those harnesses. One deer is not worth the price of your mobility the rest of your life. So make sure you got those harnesses on. Words of wisdom right there. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. We appreciate it. Peace. Thanks, guys. See ya.